welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio Season 2, Episode 4. Today I am talking with Lama Surya Das, and today we will be discussing Tibetan Dream Yoga. This, this episode, as the title suggests, is quite different in the normal scientific um, aspects of sleep we have been discussing, but one that is of interest of mine and an area I will be looking into in the future. So, who is Lama Suryadas? Uh, Lama Suryadas is one of the foremost Western Buddhist meditation teachers and scholars. The Dalai Lama, that's right, the Dalai Lama, affectionately calls him the American Lama. Now, in this episode, Lama Suryadas speaks about meeting the Dalai Lama and the effect that the Dalai Lama has had on himself and his practices over the years. So, this is a very interesting episode in regard to that. Lama Surya Das has spent over 45 years studying Zen, Vipassana, Vipassana meditation, yoga and Tibetan Buddhism with many of the great masters of uh, Asia and Tibet. He is an authorized Lama in the Tibetan Buddhist order, a leading spokesperson for Buddhism and contemporary spirituality. He's a translator, a poet, a meditation master, a chant master and a spiritual activist. Lama Surya Das is the author of the international best-selling Awakening Trilogy. So in that we have Awakening the Buddha Within, Awakening to the Sacred, and Awakening the Buddhist Heart, as well as his latest book, Make Me One With Everything. And you may have heard that joke about the pizza. If not, we do discuss it. Now in 1991 he established the Zogen Foundation and Zogen Retreats, and I am 100% saying that wrong. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to speak English without trying to speak Tibetan or pronounce some of these words. In 1993 with the Dalai Lama, he founded the Western Buddhist Teachers Network and regularly organizes um, international Buddhist teachers conferences. Today, Lama Suryadas teaches and lectures around the world and conducts dozens of meditation retreats. He has a podcast called Awakening Now and can be found on the Be Here Now Network. He has a blog called Ask the Lama, L-A-M-A, and you can follow him on Twitter and on Instagram at Lama Suryadas and his website Surya.org. In this episode we discuss a number of aspects of Tibetan Dream Yoga and we also talk about the basics of Buddhism, about Buddha, the benefits of meditation, meditation on stress, dream yoga, how it works and we get into some of the practicalities of it and we also discuss his audio book on Tibetan dream yoga which is currently on special and I think that's less than $15 at the moment and if you are not even interested in Tibetan dream yoga it's even worth it to get it for the stories at the start because they're quite uh, entertaining. Lama Suryadas is an orator and uh, probably a better storyteller than I am and um, yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. It was it was quite different, and I I really enjoyed this, and um, it's put me down a route of investigating different aspects of sleep. So I'm going to leave you with some adverts uh, before we kick into the episode, because these generous people and these businesses help support the podcast and keep it going. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any comments or any feedback, you can hit me up on Twitter at Sleep for Perform. Um, or Ian Dunigan at sleepforperformance.com.au and as always we have the website sleepforperformance.com.au Okay, into the episode. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbis. Orbis are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of 
significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io that's orbiz O-R-B-I-Z.io for more information. Get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon 
your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. And we'll go five four three two one welcome back to sleep for performance radio this is nearly a midnight special for me here in perth because i am joined by the infamous lama soridas lama soridas how are you good uh, oh god it's 10 a.m here Ian. it's so early holy crap yeah, he is doing it. Okay, let me try to get my brain working. Uh, well, forget that. Maybe we'll just do a heart to heart then. Okay, that's he, better. He, he, for the for the people who can't see him, he is still in bed and he is drinking coffee, sitting bolt upright. So, for, for those listeners of the podcast, you've heard me talk a lot about science. You've heard me talk a lot about industry. You've heard me talk about a lot of military and other sort of crazy events. But there is a side to me that people don't know which is since about 2001, since meeting my wife, I got introduced to the Dalai Lama, not personally, but via a book called The Art of Happiness. Since then, I have been reading lots of Buddhism um, books. I've been constantly listening to podcasts on the subject. But then the weird and wonderful life of martial arts and Buddhism crossed for me because there is a very famous commentator, Joe Rogan, who commentates on uh, UFC, who has a podcast, Duncan Trussell was on that podcast. I listened to Duncan. Duncan then was talking Duncan about randomness. <laughs> Love Duncan. He's pretty crazy. My yeah, wife, li- my wife yeah. listens, to, listens to him at work. She said He's he- like the spiritual gangster. <laughs> so there's two people. As a side note, my wife listens to her work, which is Jack Cornfield and Duncan Trussell. And she says, without yeah. those people, I would probably, probably commit murder. <laughs> Keep her saying. So that's great. I'll tell them that. <laughs> so um 
so I listened to Duncan. Duncan was constantly talking about Ramdas. I was like, who is this guy, Ramdas? And so I heard of Timothy Leary. I got down the rabbit hole on Ramdas about four or five years ago. Was just listening to everything he was he was doing, watching everything on YouTube. Went right back to the start. Then I came across Raghu Marcus, Krishnadas, Lama Suridas. And I was like, this is like the Dirty Dozen. This is the bunch of originals from the early 70s. Um, and so for me personally, this is the most nerving podcast I've done because I feel like I'm in esteemed glory. Like you're one of the founders of bringing probably Eastern spirituality to the Western world. And so the path of how I got to you is very, is very interesting. I reached out a couple of weeks ago to your team thinking that I wouldn't hear anything back. <laughs> and lo and behold, you said yes. So it's, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. Yeah, so I'm really thankful. We don't know any better. We just, we just <laughs> say yes to everybody and everything. <laughs> we'll keep saying yes. <laughs> You're an Irish or Australians. Irish Australians, that's right, yeah. Or uh, Osrish. <laughs> Osrish, that's a good one. So, Lama Soridas, you are um, one of the foremost Western Tibetan uh, Western Buddhist meditation teachers. The Dalai Lama calls you the American Lama. So I want to start with that. How did you get into the room with the Dalai Lama and how did he call you the Dalai Lama or are you just lifelong mates and you hang around together? How does this, how does this work? Well, good karma, a combination of good karma and it's all just one big mistake. <laughs> at least from my late mother and father's point of view. I'm Jewish on my parents' side. You know, I grew up in New York and Brooklyn and Long Island. I went to college in New York, and then I went to India looking for these kind of things, which I had met in college in the 60s, as well as the peace movement, the psychedelic movement, as you mentioned, Tim Leary and Dick Alpert, Ramdas, and others. And... Um, I went to India in 71 and I was 20 and I met all those, the Das brothers that you mentioned. We all had the same guru, Maharaji, the old man in the plaid blanket in Ram Das's books, Maharaji, Nimkaroli Baba. And um, he named me Suri Das. And then I was with, he died in 73. And then I was with Tibetan lamas in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I became a Buddhist monk and a, did lama training, three-year meditation retreats, learned Tibetan and things like that. So my teacher, Kala Rinpoche, was the yoga teacher of the Dalai Lama. And I got an introduction to meet the Dalai Lama in person in Dharamsala, where he lives in northern India. This is before he, Dalai Lama became so well-known through getting the Nobel Peace Prize in 1989. So um, there wasn't that much of a crush to see him around him. It was mostly refugees from Tibet who wanted to see him. They were refugees in India with him in refugee camps. So I got to be, you know, have a private interview with the Dalai Lama when I was 21 in his meeting room or audience room. Sit on, he didn't let people, us bow to him. He came to the door and shook our hand, my hands and, you know, pulled me over and we sat down on the couch next to each other. And his translator, uh, general secretary, knelt on the floor because he wouldn't sit at the same level as the great Dalai Lama, the, you know, God King of Tibet, the, you know, the great Bodhisattva or Awakener, 
the king of compassion, whatever, Dalai Lama. So I was there sitting next to Dalai Lama, like two peas in a pod, haha, 21 and a half year old me and the great Dalai Lama who speaks English. And the translator was helping a little with some, you know, complicated words. And there we were chatting away. And, you know, Dalai Lama is asking me what I'm doing. You know, I tell him I'm trying to study Buddhism in Nepal with Lama Tupjin Yeshe, who I know has a popular center in Australia, the founder of Wisdom Publications, Lama Zopa. And um, I was one of their early English teachers in the early 70s, Lama Yeshe and Lama Zopa. And the Dalai Lama, you know, said, well, I'm, I'm a like a, a, a leader of the Tibetan people and we're in exile and I have to play a more diplomatic role and I'm very busy traveling at all. I, I'm just a humble monk. I wish I could do what you were doing. And you're so, I really, it's fantastic that you're studying Buddhism, you know, full time and meditating with your lamas, you know, and I was like floored, you know, I mean, my whole world vision, my wealth and my like a store was turned upside down. Like what? And it was so empowering. And so I thou, you know, I to I equal. Yeah. Not talking to me like I was a young whippersnapper and he's a great spiritual leader, you know, lifelong meditation master and saintly monk and all, peace activist. And it was very empowering and also encouraging. And of course, it made a huge impression on me. I mean, I was living there in India and Nepal and with my gurus, but um, this made a huge impression on me and, Helped me really, it gave me a good empowerment or boost or vote of confidence to continue d- down this path, which wasn't that popular then in the early 70s. And it became more popular. And now mindfulness is all the rage, at least in North America and the West and in many hospitals and even corporate now. And, you know, yoga is everywhere. And of course, Tibetan Buddhism is everywhere, partly thanks to the Dalai Lama's huge efforts and Thich Nhat Hanh with his form of Buddhism, Theravadan and Zen and so on. So the time has come. So that's how I got into it and stayed into it in the 70s, 80s and 90s, mostly over in Asia. Again, my parents weren't that happy about that. I, I, I know people want to know, what did your mother think? I was 20, you know. But um, as my mother, late mother would say, and you can't see me on the video, but, you know, Ian, you could see. That my mother would, like, roll her eyes up and people would ask her what, you know, the local newspaper would interview us together. I mean, 10 or 15 years later when I came back and was teaching and writing books, Lama Suri so does. And she would say, Oh, hey, after 10 or 20 years, you can get used to anything. <laughs> anyway, he's helping people. That's what we care about. <laughs> but if you had family and children, you know, we'd have grand, more grandchildren. That would be nice. You know, she'd have to add on as like the small print at the bottom. Wow. Two, 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 great, two great influences, your mother and Dalai Lama, two opposing forces. Well, well, <laughs> My Jewish mother, you know, Jewish mother. And my father, of course. But anyway, um, we all contain multitudes, as Walt Whitman said. So there are many parts of us. So I'm still, you know, Jewish on my parents' side, but Buddhist by training and choice, inclination, maybe past lives, as some people tell me, who knows. That's that's like, uh, I love Ram, Ram Das's, uh you know, his, what's his word in? I'm a Hindu boo Jew. <laughs> yeah, right. 
So today we have the Boojus and the Hindus and the Roll Your Own Buddhists and the feminist, you know, <laughs> Hindus and the, the the yoga, you know, therapists and, you know, a big, but more seriously, a big interface between psychology and Buddhism and medicine and meditation. And of course, there's a lot of neurodharma yeah. these days, yeah. neuroscience researching states of consciousness in meditation or in yoga or in TM or in Buddhist meditation. So we live in a melting pot society like um, Australia, most many immigrants, of course, the aboriginals too, the natives. Um, in America, we have the, you know, original peoples, the native Americans, formerly known as Indians, the Native Americans, but mostly we're all immigrants of immigrant stock. So it's a huge melting pot. So we have melting pot karma. So we have melting pot dharma. Unlike in the old world where your grandparents were, you know, the same as you and you stayed in the same village or city and you probably stayed in the same profession, mm. married in your clan or religion, uh, stayed in the same guild, followed along in your grandparents and parents' way of life. Here, much more mobile society, um, global economy, of course, with modern electronics and the internet and CNN and the big corporations, you know, the global economy and everything. You know, when, when my parents visited me in Kyoto, Japan in 1974, they stayed at an American hotel chain called Howard Johnson's. I don't know if you have that in Australia. No. It's all over America. No, I haven't. And, it had ice, and it, yeah, and when I went to visit them, you know, it had ice machines in the hallways and the New York Times in the gift shop and a McDonald's in the lobby. This is 1974 in Kyoto, Japan already. <laughs> the ancient thousand-year-old cultural capital that has a thousand temples. McDonald's in the lobby of the American hotel chain, Howard Johnson's. So I didn't know if I was in Pittsburgh or Seattle or Kyoto when I was inside there. So global economy. Yeah. So melting pot karma, melting pot dharma. Yeah. It's funny. I said, we I was know about psychology and, you know, many of us were brought up Judeo Christian in the, like, whatever we call it, Western countries, including Australia, obviously the British empire and everywhere. But, um, you know, we have a lot of cross-cultural influences now and bridging, and that's great, East and West bridging and integration and one world interconnected, interdependent. I think we can't overlook that. So, so sorry, Adas, uh, many people listening to the podcast might, might not be too familiar with Buddhism or they might have heard of the Dalai Lama, they might have heard of some mindfulness. How, do you, how would you describe Buddhism? to the general population? What's your kind of uh, elevator speech, as I say, in business these days? What, what is the kind of the crux of Buddhism? It could be good for you. I like it. <laughs> I love it. Oops, this is my floor. Got to go. <laughs> I guess, this, okay, is I, I, this is the Twitter era. <laughs> the Twitter era, yeah. You all get 140 characters. syllables like a haiku. <laughs> That's why a word like mindfulness is good. It's uh, the, the opposite of mindlessness. <laughs> That's its virtue. Of course, there's a lot more to mindfulness than that, and meditation and spirituality and awakening your mind, opening your heart, you know, being more embodied, not just living in the head, and also relational mindfulness, 
and environmental, you know, mindfulness, being in touch with the earth and the species and all that, not just living in our heads or just think of human beings, but all beings and think of the environment and all interconnected, interdependent. As we know, the environment is endangered. We can't live on this spaceship earth, planet earth. If the environment gets too degraded and goes over the tipping point that some people are worried about. And, you know, so I think it's important to look around a little and um, have a community and national and international awareness and interspecies awareness today. Not just think about me, myself, and I. Not be a narcissist like some leaders we know. Not be too selfish. You know, we all have needs, but greed can become a problem. Mahama Gandhi taught all this, if you look it up. The Dalai Lama is very influenced by Gandhi. Of yeah. course, Gandhi yeah. was influenced. He was a Hindu, but, you know, influenced by Buddha's nonviolence also. Gandhi and Ahimsa was very influenced by Buddha's nonviolence. And Martin Luther King's nonviolent resistance and the civil rights movement here in America in the 50s, 60s, before he was assassinated in the 70s, I think it was, um, was very influenced by Gandhi and nonviolence. The Dalai Lama is very influenced by that. So we all advocate nonviolence. Of course, Americans have been in a lot of wars, including the Vietnam War that, you know, we marched against when we were in college, but other wars even since then and before that. And it's a heavy um, karma to bear. Mm -hmm. So it could help us deal with our greed and hatred and prejudices. But really, what Buddhism does is liberates our minds, frees our minds, opens our hearts, and helps us be more authentic and find our true selves, our original goodness, not original sin. The Buddha within, not the Buddha just in history. The inner light, the inner divinity, the Godhead, whatever you call it, within each of us and all of us together, not just in me not just in Buddhists, not just in men, not just in humans, but Buddha said all beings endowed with the radiant, shining Buddha nature, meaning the divine nature, the inner light, like the Christos, not just Jesus Christ, the teacher, the saint, but the Christos, the inner light, the Jesus heart in each of us. And that's what Buddhism offers us as a path to that through meditative awareness, mindfulness, and empathic, warm, loving kindness and compassion. Those are kind of, let's say, the two main practices of the Eightfold Path taught by Buddha. Yeah, so it's uh, that's a great explanation. Um, recently, um, what kind of really sparked me to, to, to try and get a hold of you was I went on um, not a, a three-year retreat, and I do want to talk about the three-year retreat because that, like, that was, yeah, that was, I listened to you speaking to Raghu Marcus about that and mind rolling, and I nearly like had a heart attack. Three years? No, I that's what, that's very excessive. <laughs> it is, yeah. So when I, fanatic. I've I've often done hundred mile, I've often done hundred mile runs. I've done some in Colorado, and people. So say, it's something like that. You did the Pike <laughs> Peak Run or marathon? Uh, Leadville, Leadville one hundred. That's pretty excessive. Yeah, it is excessive. But, but, I, but I, think it, I think it's easier than a three-year retreat. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> so I did a, a three-day retreat 
here <laughs> in uh, Jana Grove, which is part of Ajan Brands, um, you know, sort of retreat center that, that they've built for mm-hmm. people like me that can go there for three days, 10 days, whatever it may be. Yeah, so I, I, went there, I went there for three days and, you know, you go on a Friday and Saturday morning you get up at like five o'clock and I was kind of going, oh, why are we going to get up at five o'clock? Um, and I get up and do some movement and then there's meditation. I was like, oh, this is, Jesus, oh, it's going, oh, God, oh, God, you know, it's the weekend. And so I kind of struggled through and did the meditation and I'm not a regular meditator and I was in a fair bit of probably pain trying to sit cross-legged and be kind of zen. Um, but then during the day, I started getting a bit more energy because it was a silent retreat. And for those who know me, you know, this was probably even harder than a 100-mile run for three days because there was no phones, no nothing. You were just there in this nice little, cottage in the, in the woods and it was it was really nice and about 24 hours into it um we had a small meeting with the teacher and i i asked janet, janet. Well, sorry okay go janet the not, teacher. A te- not a teacher was um uh, aria a lady from germany who oh trained- yeah i was just making the point it's a lady teacher that's my point oh sorry yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's good for people to hear that. Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I, uh, and so, you know, I actually, um, you had to speak and say how you felt. And I actually just started crying straight away. And I went, I can't believe oh. I, sta- I stayed quiet for 24 hours. And I started crying. <laughs> and I said, I actually don't want to talk. So she, so she kind of uh, said, you have to talk. So uh, anyway, I asked, why do, why, do, why do we get up at half five in the morning? This that's is crazy. the big question of life. Right? And she, and she, and she said... <laughs> <laughs> well, well, in Burma, we get up at half three. And I was like, what? Yeah. I said, right. I'm, I'm a sleep scientist. We are eating into REM. And I was like, okay, I'll hold off here again. So anyway. Um, I, this I, is I, the tradition of awakening, Ian, not sleeping. But wait, wait till I tell you it's what happened. I know, you're yeah, a yeah, but, healthy sleep. But, 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 but this is... People but this have is, sleep problems also. We all know that. But this is the strange thing that happened was later on that evening, I started feeling better and better and better. And I hadn't napped during the day. That night I went to bed at nine o'clock. I felt so relaxed. I was like jelly getting around and I felt so relaxed. I went to bed at like, half, I think it was half nine. I got into bed. I was so happy and relieved. I woke up at what I didn't know what time was. And thought, it must be time to get up. I feel great. Looked at my watch, half two in the morning. I'm like, I am full of energy. This is crazy. Ian, just go back to sleep because if you don't sleep, you're going to be tired tomorrow. I fell back asleep, walked back up again, four o'clock. I went, that's it. I'm getting up. Got up. You know, at this stage, three days into the tree, I was full on, like, you know, into it. Had the blanket, the hat. I was off. I was sitting up outside looking at the stars. I made a cup of coffee. I just sat on this bench looking at this pagoda. And I just felt so energetic, calm and synchronized. I never had that feeling before in my life. Stayed awake all day came home that evening and my wife was like, oh my God, you've changed so much in three days. And that got me thinking, why is it that in the space of 24 hours, I go from eight hours of sleep to like five or six hours of sleep and feel so energetic? So my first question is, why is that? In, when you're around Buddhism or doing meditation, what is it that yeah. triggers, do you think? It's not just around Buddhism. You might get that from yoga. You might get, you know, from fasting, from any kind of 
let's say, intense or thorough spiritual practice. And the reason is because it raises your energy, your chi, your shakti, and it's relaxing. So let me give you an example. Uh, this is almost like a non sequitur, but it's totally related. So, and I never tell, I rarely if ever tell miracle stories, unlike some of my peers and colleagues. I know a Lama, His Holiness the Gyawang Drukpa. He used to come to Australia a lot, and his parents used to live in Australia. So, just as a connection, but he lives in Indian subcontinent. He has monasteries there in, in Nepal. He does not sleep. He might fall asleep for half an hour over his prayer books or at night. But, you know, he doesn't do the pajamas and the bed thing. And I asked him, how do you do that? And he said, it's Buddha's blessing. I said, come on, how do you, what do you think? You know, tell me something. He said, well, because I meditate five or six or seven hours a day my whole life, it's like sleeping. It's totally, it's more relaxing than fitful sleep that cycles through the different REM cycles. You know, he's an educated 50-year-old Lama who, I taught English when he was 10. So he grew up in India. He knows, you know, modern things as well as traditional things. He said, you know, you have nightmares, you get up and, you know, you wake up and go to the bathroom, you, you know, you have to go back down. You're, you're not usually in the deep four, fourth sleep cycle. You know, you bob up and down towards two and one and consciousness. Like some people have apnea, and if you check, they tell you you woke up 20 times or 40 mm -hmm. times and you don't even know it. You know, some people sleep with insomnia. He said, so it's like better than sleeping at night. And he said, and his, his parents uh, bought him a, a, a double bed and got him a, a nice big furry dog to sleep with that told him to he should sleep it's good for his longevity and he tried it but he couldn't and it ended up being the dog's bed the dog did all the sleeping in that bed and he continued with his habit of being up at night and he mastered taught himself html and the internet like in the 1980s or 90s and architecture and um, a lot of things that they didn't teach usually in the tibetan lamas foreign languages so I think it's about relaxing and energy, especially. And you could add to that clarity and focus. You know how exhausted it is? Exhausting it is when you're very scattered and multitasking yeah. and there's a lot going on. Yeah. Well, if you, you know, you, I don't know, you're sitting in a peaceful way, not just meditating, but maybe you're at the beach or in nature or walking in nature. It's not exhausting. It's energizing. Yeah, I so actually, I, I, any actually, spiritual practice could bring that, including prayer. I think it's psychophysiological. It involves the body, of course, and but also the breath, the energy, the hormones, and and the mind, the consciousness. And therefore, you, you know, you have more energy. You need to sleep less. Of course, everybody's different. Mm. Ian. Some people, when they go to a three-day retreat, they sleep the whole time because they're so sleep-deprived from their five or six and a half hour daily life because of job, work, you know, and kids, family, and habits. Yeah. Late yeah. night watching TV or internet, some screen handheld, and still getting up morning with the alarm or whatever, and rushing around. And no room for a nap. People say they can't nap because they're stressed even, mm. you know. When they're tired, the people are overtired. Then you go on vacation and sleep for a lot if you can. If there's no, you know, children waking up in the morning or the, my dog always wants to get me up to walk her in the morning kind of thing. 
So um, it's a trade-off. Yeah. I think spiritual practice brings up a lot of energy and also relax and release of the happy hormones rather than the stress hormones, as scientists have shown, you guys know, and so on. You know, out of interest, a paper was released yesterday showing that people who have a religious practice actually sleep better and live longer. So it was published yesterday in a journal. Um, so I haven't gone through it in depth. I just read the That's abstract, so it's interesting. My my original hypothesis was when I was up at that retreat, obviously you kind of you kind of start thinking about what's doing this. And I was like, I wonder is it with the elimination of electronic devices, like you said, all the sort of electricity around you, all the stressors, you know, um, you just kind of completely cut yourself off. So does your cortisol go so low, you know, um, and you don't have these artificial spikes of cortisol throughout the day like you do when you're watching TV or talking to somebody or getting a phone call. So it gets so low and dissipates so quickly that you get back to the state or this natural state of a human that we probably are designed to be. And I went searching on Google Scholar and PubMed for the last two or three weeks, and I cannot find any good studies on this that kind of shows this um and so it's very interesting i think how meditation for me personally was able to help me probably sleep less and i'm also mindful as well that people will be listening to this going oh great if i meditate 20 minutes a day i can get by on four hours sleep a night so yeah. Well, you were meditating all day those three days, not just 20 minutes. Yeah, so that's right. That's one thing. And you weren't working and running around and having coffee to wake up five times a day. And the coffee gives you like an adrenaline, caffeine adrenaline rush. And then it drops, you know, like the coffee squeezes your adrenal, adrenal glands. It puts yeah. out the adrenaline. And then after that, you have a big crash down or the sugar rush. So it's different than what you were doing for three days. But everybody's different. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's also the honeymoon phase. Like when you do something new, you get excited and you're into it. So, you know, three days or five days or a week. And, you know, it's like a new relationship where you're honeymooned. And then, you know, after that, you get into the regular, more the normal. I don't want to call it grind, but, you know, just the normal. It's not so exciting and new and fascinating. And then you, what you called your natural state, you know, more like your natural, like water finds its own level, your own flow, your own level. Um, as you mentioned, the cortisol, the stress hormone, you know, it's been scientifically shown. There's a lot of neurodharma, neuroscience and dharma mixing about this, um, how it helped releases the dopamine and the other pleasure or happy hormones just like sex does just like chocolate does uh, instead of the stress hormones like cortisol so a lot of this has scientific background now which is like the religion of the modern age so we believe in that and that supports you know the age-old millennia-old teachings and encouragement about yoga is healthy you know body mind and spirit energy and soul not just for exercise or to look better meditation also and how these things give you more vitality as well as longevity and more peace of mind and uh, anger management and so on so you know you become much it improves your relations you become a better listener if you're more mindful there's a lot of benefits uh since you were talking about studies and papers um we have tibetan dream yoga it's part of the ancient 
wake, you know, uh, what do you guys call it? Lucid dreaming. Yep. There's more to it. So Tibetan Buddhism has had that as one of its, quote, yogas. It's not a physical yoga. It's like a mental yoga you do in your sleep, intentionally waking up while you're dreaming and know, knowing that you're asleep. It doesn't mean waking up from the sleep. Yeah. Like coming aware, being conscious that you're dreaming while asleep, while dreaming. And then you can play with that and be more at the cause level rather than the effect of conditions and circumstances and direct the dreams like a magician makes magic images but isn't fooled by it. And then that carries over in the daytime. So you're more of a have more self-mastery, not control freak, more self-mastery. So you're more choiceful and intentional rather than just reactive. And you can, you know, you're not so victimized by outer conditions and circumstances. More principle-centered, heart-centered, more aware, can choose how, when, and if to respond, not just blindly react. So it's excellent for mindful anger management or just mindful emotional balancing and healthy emotional regulation, not suppressing, not getting carried away by emotions, but experiencing them and that being able to intentionally consider how, when, and if to respond, as I said, not just blindly react. So that, those are some important principles and benefits. There's a lot of research done. Uh, since you're a scientist, you probably know about this. I don't know if our audience does, like the Institute for Healthy Minds, Richie Davison, University of Wisconsin, done a lot of research on this. I don't know how much is on the sleep, sleep side. Um, the Mind in Life, Institute with the Dalai Lama. There's a huge website that's been going on for 25 years. A lot of peer-reviewed papers and other experimental, you know, pushing the box investigations there. Uh, Mind and Life Institute. If you look that up and their bibliography and their scientists, you know, like Richie Davison, Dan Siegel, Roger Walsh. These are all, doc you know, doctors before their name. Um, their consciousness and science researchers, longtime meditators, um, Jed Brewer in Massachusetts, John Kabat-Zinn. These are all well-known names in the field. Um, there must be quite a bit of this about meditation and sleep problems because there's so much sleep problems in our society. Oh, yeah. I'm Even meditation teachers have them. insomnia, uh, waking up too many times, um, nightmares, Etc. Mm. So can't relax. Sorry, that's how. How would um, how, how does the Tibetan uh, dream yoga work, or lucid dreaming? How how does it actually work? Does does somebody have to like? Is it going to make them feel more tired the next day? Is it like they're doing? No, absolutely not. No, because they're still asleep. Is it going to make them no, feel, have to do extra work? How how would how would it work for somebody if they wanted to try it or get into it? Well, how it, would it work? Is, is you first you talk about benefits, then you talk about how to do it. So first, I'm going to talk about um, how to do it, and then remind me about a little bit about the benefits. As I said, it carries over into daily life where you feel more free of circumstances and conditions because you realize you could, you know, you, you have some control over how you react. It's not what happens to you, but what you make of it that makes all the difference. So through dream yoga in the dream, you realize you can be like the musician and direct the magician, sorry, in the dream and direct the dream if you're conscious that you're dreaming. 
Yeah. It's like out-of-body experiences. You get a different perspective looking down on your body from the ceiling. I know scientists may or may not believe this, but some do, and I've experienced this, and it's not like a superpower. Uh, some people have it, just like some people have near-death experiences, which, you know, are well-researched and, you know, some are re- true. Some of the claims are true. Maybe some are exaggerated. I don't know. Anyway, I have a CD. It's an enhanced DVD now from Sounds True publisher called Tibetan Dream Yoga. Awakening while sleeping. Something like that. It's called um, Tibetan Dream Yoga from Sounds True. And it explains how to do it and what to do, what the benefits are, and also some things back in history, like how Abraham Lincoln had a dream about being assassinated before he was. This is history. You can Google it. And um, I don't know, Constantine, Emperor, pagan emperor from Constantinople, Constantinople had a dream and saw a burning cross, and he converted to Christianity, and his mother converted, and they made that whole part of the world Christian, you know. Constantinople, Istanbul, Christianity. There's a lot of examples in history of people and dreams. Um, I think Jung or Freud said dreams are letters from the soul. So it's like information if you can, you you know, read that language or learn it, not just interpret it. Just, you know, it's like messages. It's like bits of your unconscious and subconscious showing up. So becoming more aware of your dreams is very helpful and could be healing. Um, one thing we do in Tibetan Dream Yoga is keep a journal. First thing you wake up, write down your dreams. You might think you don't remember much, but it's like pulling on the end of a ball of yarn. One little piece sticking out might unravel five or ten yards of yarn. So if you get a hold of a tale of a dream when you wake up, if you write it in your dream journal that nobody else has to see, you can keep it completely private. So unedited, just blurt it out. Then you start to remember more dreams and get more of this information into your conscious mind in your journal. Um, Then more to the specific point, lucid dreaming has been discovered by modern psychologists in the last 50 or 100 years. The Tibetan dream yoga is uh, 1,500 years old, so there's a lot of refinements and research, you know, old world research without fMRIs and x-rays and brainwave machines. But, you know, research in the laboratory of experience by very dedicated, lifelong, rigorous yogis and yoginis practicing those things. So as you're going to sleep, you make the intention or you even chant something like, I'm translating from Tibetan now. We chant in Tibetan. I'm going to say it in English. No, tell me in Tibetan, please. Do it in Tibetan. Um, I have to sing it in Tibetan. Milam Chubo Nangsashi Gawa Gamsa Juma Milam La Nadu Naljur Kepsuche Nani Jangchub Samke Do. So that means, may I awaken within the dream and recognize it's just a dream and help all beings awaken from this dreamlike impermanent life. May I awaken within the dream and realize it's just a dream and help all beings awaken 
from this dreamlike life. That means enlightenment, not just awake from sleep and have insomnia. May all beings awaken. So it's got a, like an aspirational bodhicitta, yeah. compassionate yeah. heart part, as well as a practice. May I awaken within the dream. So you set this imprint into your consciousness and then it seeps down you know, into your subconsciousness, maybe unconscious even if you say it enough, you know, over time, not just the first night maybe, and it becomes a habit. And then in your dream, you may wake up and, you know, even remember part of that, may awaken and awaken all beings or something, you become more, quote, self-conscious, not neurotic and inhibited and, you know, like some people may feel self-conscious in public, like a teenager, not that, but more self-aware, yeah, more yeah. conscious, self-aware and present in the dream and master rather than victim of the dreamlike illusory images. And that carries over to being more master rather than victim of these dreamlike illusory images of life, which, you know, not being a control freak, but recognize that, that, you know, there's no one else pulling the strings and doing things to us really. I mean, of course, you know, shit happens, but in general, it's what we make of it that makes all the difference. Not everybody came out of concentration camps in World War II, burnt out, bitter, and with loss of faith. Elie Wiesel arose like a phoenix from the ashes and wrote about it and spent his whole life trying to work for human rights. You know, he was a 12-year-old boy in Auschwitz. So it's not what happens to us, but what we, and he saw his parents and family killed and others. But it's not what happens to us, but we make of it that makes all the difference. That's the principle a yeah. spiritual mastery. So in the dream yoga, we chant that as we go to sleep. We gaze into the light instead of taking too many sleeping pills and putting our pillow over our head and a blindfold on and earplugs and trying to, you know, whatever you want to call it, be like an ostrich or like zone out <laughs> as fast as possible. You know, maybe you lie on your back or in Tibetan Buddhism, we say men on your right side, women on your left side because of your chakras and channels and breathing, men on your right side, women on your left, and put your hands, palms joined under your head or in front, like the way Buddha was when he died, lying on down on the tree on his right side at age 80. And, but it has internal correspondence right now to your chakras and channels and energy flow and breath. And you, you think that and you chant that and you look into the light behind your eyelids or your third eye, you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated. Just gazing into the light, in other words, being aware rather than trying to dive into oblivion. You know how we go to sleep and we think, oh, I got to fall asleep because I got to wake up in yeah, you know, yeah. six hours because, 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 because yeah. it's stressful. Yeah. We're stressing ourselves. It's different than chanting something, thinking about your other mateys, you know, your, your, your community members who do the same, the teacher that you love or trust that taught you that, whatever. And, you know, putting your head in the teacher's lap or in Tara's lap or Buddha's lap, or it doesn't matter. This is all, you know, just metaphorical, yeah. really. And relaxing and looking into the light and being illumined rather than in darkened as you go to sleep. And if you get good at it, you can even be aware while the hypnagogic images start to come behind your eyes and you're kind of half dreaming and half awake. And then you slip into sleep, into this first and second REM cycles, and you're still aware. And maybe you're still aware even into the third REM cycle. The fourth one is almost deep, like, like black light. It's hard to be aware in that one. 
like after you die in the bardo, Tibetans say you mm-hmm. could do this and be aware. So it's a good preparation for death. You know, whether we believe in rebirth or not, I'm just telling you what the teachings are about the Tibetan dream yoga. So you go to sleep in the light rather than in the dark, in mint, and stressed. And then you start to probably, eventually, you get the habit. You hear that chant in your mind or you wake up in the dream and know you're dreaming and then you play with it. Like maybe you imagine that you are under the Bodhi tree with the Buddha and a thousand orange-robed monks and nuns. If you're a Buddhist, that makes you happy. And, you know, you hear teachings from the Buddha. It's like a creative visualization. You know, if you go to relaxation class, they say, close your eyes and imagine that or certain kind of meditation for relaxation. Imagine you're at your favorite relaxed place in the world, maybe by a lake, maybe in your you know, bed, maybe with your grandchildren playing in the yard. And just, you know, in your mind, be there through creative visualization. That's very relaxing. And your whole system relaxes. And you know, you don't have to do anything. You're not in the learning mode. You're not in the competitive mode. You're left brain linear you know thinking conceptual brain slows down and your right holistic creative imagination you know kind of lights up and things like that and you get the whole picture at once rather than step by step exhaustedly working everything out with conceptual thinking so that's kind of the background and the practice of tibetan dream yoga and you can read this in books there's a book Tibetan dream yoga by tenzin namgyal yeah, I've read that. That's recommendable. Uh, my CD, Enhanced CDs, has some images on it from Sounds True, Tibetan Dream Yoga. Uh, Stephen LeBurge has yeah. written some good yeah. books and done some good research on this in modern times. Stephen LeBurge. That's a great Dr. book, Stephen that is, yeah. LeBurge, who's an expert on this in the last yeah. few decades, made it popular. I think there's even a LeBurge or a Sleep Dream Yoga I don't want to say helmet, like earphones or something, like a gizmo or an app that you put over your ears that guides you into this. Into it, yeah. It may Uh, go over your eyes too. I can't remember. People used to send me all these things, you know, to try (laughs) it, give them an endorsement. And I tried one or two, but it becomes like just too many packages to open and endorsements to write. I already get books from everybody who wants me to endorse them. And I can't read them all, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So I have uh, last week, um, just on your on your uh, Tibetan uh, dream yoga um, audio book. Even if you don't want to practice dream yoga, it's a great CD because there's some great stories in it. Um, and I do recall a story about Abraham Lincoln and so on. And so it's a great. If you if you never want to try it, get it for the stories. It's worth it for that alone. And then I, I started uh, practicing, you know, during the day because there is kind of this. I suppose, kind of drill during the day when you're just walking around. Is this real or am I dreaming? Am I awake? Am I asleep? <laughs> and, then I, and then I start getting, I start freaking myself out and I went, what if we're living in a simulation? What if we don't know? What, and I was like, what, okay, if? <laughs> what if? And then I was like, what oh, if man. we are? What if we are? And then, and then I started thinking about reincarnation. And uh, then I was thinking about, because, you know, I, 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 I actually believe that I have had past lives or been di- at some sort of different energy before. And I started what thinking kind of about scientists are you, Ian? Oh, <laughs> see, this is this is this is going to be a podcast that's going to blow a lot of people. The out. Irish poet side of you coming no, out. Th- there's going to be a lot of people unsubscribing to this. <laughs> yeah. um, so I, I started thinking about this, and then I was like, "Oh my god!" 
uh, and I think about reincarnation, the whole lot. So I do have a question for reincarnation. Is it brings up a lot of questions these things, which oh, is good. What, what, what it's like for science, you know, you but, question yeah. at the bottom, you find out. Yeah. So yourself. It led me to this question on reincarnation, which was, and I got two questions: one on reincarnation, one on dream levels. I'm going to call it. But in reincarnation, what puzzles me, and I watched the Unmistaken Child uh, documentary on the weekend, yeah. and Tenzin Zopa, I think his name is, um, he's actually coming to Perth in two weeks' time, and um, he's doing a talk here at the um, one of the Buddhist communities here. He's the guy who mm-hmm. found this the the, the Lama. Um, his name escapes me at the moment. Um, yes, he founded the reincarnate Lama, the reincarnation of his teacher from the previous yeah. life. Yeah. That's what the movie's about, Unmistaken Child. Unmistaken Child, great documentary. So my question is, why are no Lamas getting reborn in places like Ireland? Why, don't, why does it seem to be just reborn in Tibet? Is there no like, why doesn't the Dalai Lama get reborn and come back as an Irish man, an Irish woman, uh, a Latino or like, you know, like what, why is it always just within That's Tibet? That's a good question. Yeah, I didn't hear the first thing you said. Why is no people born in art or Ireland? In Ar- like, why is like, you know, why isn't a Tibetan person like reborn in Ireland, for example, a Lama? Why isn't he come back as an Irish no, Lama? that's obvious. Nobody wants to be reborn born in Ireland. I mean, why? It's got know. great Guinness. <laughs> okay, well, now you're changing my mind. I want to be reborn in Scotland because they're great golf courses <laughs> and scotch. No, first of all, information. There have been a bunch, dozens of recognized Tibetan Lamas reborn in. Other countries. Oh, really? Eastern and Western. Oh. Eastern and Western. Tibet, China. Uh, I'm not an expert on Southeast Asia. You know, yeah. I, I don't know about those countries. If they're Avadan Buddhism, they may not. Um, there's been a bunch of American incarnations in Seattle and Montreal, here in Boston, um, probably in South America. I don't know. I don't go there much anymore. You know, I can't keep track of everything, but yeah. people tell me st- I get. You know, a lot of stuff comes to my desk. Since I'm the American Lama, I've been doing, I've been in this since 1971, full time. So I'm like Forrest Gump I, of the <laughs> Dharma. I've been everywhere, almost without knowing. You know, by accident when things, good things are happening. So there's a, dozens of Western Lamas. The Lama I taught English to Lama Yeshe. Took Yeshe, founder Wisdom Publications, very popular. Yeah. Lama Zopa, his disciple Rinpoche in Australia, America, India, Europe. Lama Yeshe was reborn in Spain. The fifth kid, he was a son. The fifth kid named Osel of a Spanish couple who was Lama Yeshe's disciple. Lama Yeshe died, passed in about 1985 in America at his center. Well, he lived in Nepal and all. He was from Tibet. And he was reborn in Spain to his disciples, presumably. This is my, so he could be easily found. If you're born in Tibet or China, hard to find because communism suppresses all religions, not just Buddhism. Mm. Christianity, Taoism, all suppressed generally, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Russia, yeah. China, suppressed religions, communism. So... The Dalai Lama and Lama Zopramche both go to Spain. They both recognized this kid when he was four or five, maybe three. You can Google it. Lama Osel, Lama Tipton Yeshe's reincarnation. 
He was brought up by the Spanish couple. He got some Tibetan Buddhist background. Um, I don't know all the details. He may have gone to India. He ended up in Canada. I think he wanted to go to college in the West. Um, he's not really an active Buddhist teacher right now. He's still young-ish. Let's say 30. Yeah. You know, it's, it remains 35. It remains to be seen what he does. He's a recognized reincarnation. Um, another one was recognized in Seattle. I don't remember his name, but there's a movie about it, Little Buddha. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not, not sort of a Buddhist, Buddhist, Buddhist movie like A Mistaken Child, but Little Buddha was made by no less than Bernard Bertolucci. Yeah. And the Lama dies, I think, in Seattle. And his disciples... Um, do some meditation and divination and etc. Like I Ching's and you know the Tibetan form of this kind of pre prediction and psychic work and dream work. And they realize that he's reborn in in the East, probably in the Himalayas. So a couple of them, his disciples, meaning Tibetan lamas, who are fifty now, because the seventy-year-old and five-year-old lama their teacher died. They go to Nepal and they go to India looking for him. Of course, they expect it to be a him, and they are men, lamas, going to look for his reincarnation. And they have three candidates, one from India, one from Bengal, one from India, and one from Nepal. And they get gathered these three kids, and oh, shock of shock, one of them's a girl. This is all, you know, the modern message, of course. Yeah. So the three of them yeah. gather in Nepal, and they are, you know, have to choose things from his past life and, you know, like his glasses and his cane and his favorite, you know, teacup. This is how they choose the Dalai Lama too, after the head lamas go and find the candidate. And they gave him 12 things to choose from, the present Dalai Lama. Yeah. And he got yeah. them all, even though he's four years old. He got them all right, because there were some other ones just like them put next to them. So he picked 12 out of 24, and it was all the 12 things from his past life, not the imitations. Some of the imitations were even shinier or better looking, not newer, but better looking, like silver-headed cane instead of, you know, copper cane. Yeah. But he picked the one, the copper cane that he always used as an older dialogue. So there have been, you know, there's a Western Tuku in France. I think his name's Tenzin Rinpoche. His father is Jean-Louis Masubra, a senator. I'll use the American word in France. God knows what they call him there. You know, Caesar, Czar, Duke, I don't know. Jean-Louis, son, and Hecate, an American woman's son, Tenzin Rinpoche, lives in France, brought up in France, educated by Tibetan lamas. I think he's a monk. He wears the robes, and he is a Dharma teacher in France, a good one. So there's a few dozen. There's even a, a few girls, uh, women, you know, girls recognized. That happens. And um, there could be a female Dalai Lama if the Dalai Lama comes back as a female, and if it works as his mission. Yeah. So, of course, the Lamas, if they have choice, which – you know, you're wondering about rebirth and like, do they choose where to be reborn? Or well, if they're they if they have choice, they'd be reborn in Tibet for the Tibetan people, not in the Chinese, 
you know, not in China per se, but in Tibet and China. Yeah. Or they were born out of Tibet where they can more easily be educated, live the monastic life, go to philosophy and, you know, retreat college and, you know, have more freedom to travel. Yeah. Like the 17th Karmapa is a very important Lama right next to the Dalai Lama. He was born in China. They recognized him in China. He was like almost trapped or house arrest almost in his monastery in Tibet, part of China. And when he was 12, he and two monks climbed out the back window of his, you know, like top story monastery room, climbed over the back wall. Of course, they had prepared a few things like horses and travel packs. This is history. You can Google it. It was in Time magazine. And they rode and walked and eventually got to a helicopter in Nepal and like paid a pilot and flew to Dharamsala with Dalai Lama and walked and got frostbite and, you know, had a, a very long journey through the Himalayas in the winter secretly so the Chinese wouldn't catch them and came to Dharamsala where the Dalai Lama lives and surprised the Dalai Lama. They had no communication with him. They didn't telegram, call or write because they didn't want to be caught. Yeah. And they showed up at the Dalai Lama's doorstep, all like, you know, frostbite and I don't know if ragged is the right word, but you know what yeah, I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like pioneers in the old west coming through the mountainous Rockies. And the whole world was amazed. There was big news. And he's about 30 now, the 17th Karmapa Lama. So he was born in Tibet and he escaped. So he could, what he said was see his teachers and get back his inheritance of Buddhist enlightenment education. Yeah. Like he might have the inner enlightenment or realization and wisdom from the past life, but he still had, it's more like potential. He had to develop it. Yeah. That's a great story. I love, I love a great escape story. <laughs> yeah. It's a great escape story. Unfortunately, his family, his parents and siblings are still in Tibet. So he misses them and the Chinese uh, give them a hard time to some extent. And the Chinese would love to have him back. Yeah, but he, you know, he'd like to go back and visit his family, but he can't. So he's so, in New Jersey right now. These okay. things are not that far from us, you yeah. know, here in the West. So, sorry, yeah. that's when, when we talk about dreams, and this is kind of getting towards the, the end. Um, is we talk about dreams, and you hear about in physics or quantum physics, you hear about parallel universes and, and different worlds. What's your thoughts on the fact that dreams might be something got to do with? either a method or a way of crossing into those other parallel universes or is it some sort of reflection or kind of echoing from a past life or noise from the from the from a future life so is it kind of going up and down in an our time scale you know past the future and is it going across different maybe potential other universes or, or planets or or worlds? yes i think i think it could of course I could say, you know, like a clever Ivy League answer here in Massachusetts, <laughs> the clever you, dream scientist, you know, in clever Perth. I see you have a nice bookcase there of those old antiques that I love called books. Some are even hardcover. Some even have little notes sticky sticking out of them, you know, like um, <laughs> books, <laughs> electronic era. But um, yes, but of course I could quibble or like, you know, like, pass the buck by saying, well, it depends what you mean by parallel universes. It depends what you mean by quantum 
physics or quantum mechanics. Um, you know, of course, the quantum physics revolution and from Einstein forward is very important and, you know, very interesting and very helpful and very true. But also a lot of people, you know, the later ones sort of disproved some of it, whatever that means, right? Some of the principles, not so workable, maybe, or, you know, the next iteration or sophistication yeah, yeah. of quantum physics or quantum mechanics or there's contradictions. I don't know if black holes and other string theories disproved, but, you know, I'm not a scientist. My brother's a neuroscientist at Johns Hopkins University, biomedical engineering doctor. So he knows a lot about this. So I hear things sometimes. I even read them. But yes, to your answer, yes. You think Time and space is very relative, as Einstein found out recently. Of course, spiritual teacher, you know, t teachings and religious teachings and wise people have been saying that for millennia. Einstein discovered recently, you know, meaning like Freud discovered, Freud and Mesmer discovered psychology recently. Yeah like 150 years ago, but Buddhist psychology and others have been around for thousands of years. It's getting more sophisticated, you know, modern science and social sciences and psychology, psychotherapy, you know, all that. But yes, time and space are very relative. So, you know, I don't know about time machines, but the mind is a marvelous, you know, when you get down to machines, then you have to say, well, First, we had we developed machines from the Stone Age to whatever, and weapons and language, blah blah blah. And Gutenberg, just four or five hundred years ago, not that long, with the printing press, and then you know now we have computers and handhelds and you know automatic driving cars and artificial intelligence and virtual reality. But um, it all—I don't know if you want to say it all comes from the mind. But how about like, wow? We should really discover the mind and all it can do because all this came from the mind, let's say, or from God's mind or from the cosmic unconscious like the Alai Vijnana, maybe like Carl Jung would say. Wow, the mind is the greatest computer or machine or artificial intelligence of all. Of course, AI or a computer might be able to beat a human at chess or do faster calculations, but in the scheme of things, we only use a five or ten percent of our brains. Maybe we could use more. I don't know about emotions, poetry, art, other boundary pushing fields. So it's not just all about who can process the numbers quicker. Yeah. Or play chess better. But there are other things that the human mind can do, you know, like they're looking for the God gene, which they haven't found yet, you know? So some people think about, well, what about divinity, you know? So here's an interesting story, since you like my stories. I mean, I want to, again, vote for really exploring outer space, but also inner space of the mind, of the heart, of consciousness, etc. And so here's a story that combines some of these things. The Dalai Lama is in it, so people like to hear that name, so it's a good story. So there was a Mind and Life conference in Dharamsala, which they have every year or two, and Western scientists, probably Eastern to meet with Dalai Lama, and he loves to learn new things, and they inform him. They read papers. They show him PowerPoints. He asks questions. He, he has, like, a lot of vision. He doesn't have a total scientific background like, like you do or my brother does 
from Western College. He has a doctor of divinity in, in Tibetan Buddhism. But somebody, some wise, we used to say wise guy, you know, which means like a wise man, but also like a wise guy, like, you know, a funny guy. Yeah, yeah. A slightly odd, funny guy. He's a real wise guy, you know, not wise, holy man, woman. So one of these very wise scientific people, it might have been a guy or a gal, they're both at these conferences, representing their field. Yes, the Dalai Lama, if a, a, a human, you know, a person, a being, could be reborn as a computer. <laughs> So I wasn't there. So I heard this story from like somebody who was there, Dan Goldman, I think, who's written a lot of science books for the Times, author of Emotional Intelligence, big bestseller. Dan Goldman, lifetime Buddhist meditator. Also one of the Das brothers from our ashram. Jagannath Das is his name. Dan Goldman, my good friend, he said, and, you know, of course, the mind is quick. So I had already concluded, of course, the Dalai Lama is going to say no. Consciousness is reborn into beings. Consciousness doesn't have to be human beings. Could be animals, insects, birds, or angels or gods or whatever you conceive of. But I thought he was going to say no. And Dan said, Dalai Lama thought about it seriously for a minute or two. And he said, yes, why not? The consciousness takes support of earth, water, fire, air, and ether, the five elements which is a human body, which is an animal body. Why can't it take support of those five elements in the form of a computer or a robot or something? Consciousness could program that thing and even, you know, become uh, smarter than the average human or animal. Not that it would. It wasn't even a prediction. It was like a could. Yeah. And I thought that was pretty open, mind-bending and like research-worthy. This is how Dalai Lama is a visionary. Yeah. He doesn't know all of the string theory and calculus and higher mathematics, Newtonian physics, whatever it's called, quantum physics. But, you know, like vision. So he might be wrong, but he said maybe could. Let's investigate. Yeah. He always says that. We could, look, we could look into that. Please look into that, Dan. <laughs> you know, and your friends. Yeah. Around the world, whoever's interested. That's, That's great. Story. That's great story. Of course, usually when people ask about rebirth, he won't mm. talk about it much in West and English because it's hard to prove and it's not worth arguing about. Of course, when he teaches Tibetans or, you know, Vietnamese or, you know, Chinese, yeah. Buddhist. It's part of Buddhism, Hinduism, and other religions. But anyway, in the West, he doesn't talk about that. He's more secular, rational, scientific. Also, therefore, no fire and brimstone, no heaven and hell talk from him. <laughs> you might hear that from other lamas. Probably in Oz, which is down under, perhaps too close to hell to ignore. Oh. So the, the lamas have to talk about it in, in Oz. But up here in the northern hemisphere, we feel closer to heaven, being very simple-minded, verging on simpleton. Well, I don't know if that's true because as, uh, as, as an Irish guy growing up in the Northern Hemisphere in an Irish Catholic country with like 90 of fire and brimstone. There was plenty of fire and brimstone in the North, I, I can know. tell you. That's, that. what, I'm, that's what I'm ragging about. <laughs> People might do the right thing because they're humanistic and intelligent, not just by the threat of hell. <laughs> I had know, a, couple, a lot of humanists who are, in my view, a lot more human-like human and 
better souls, uh, you know, nicer people than some of the fundamentalist inquisitors that we find in certain some religious corners. Well, I had that conversation today. I ran into a lady. Even Buddhists, I'm afraid. I ran into a lady today who was originally from Singapore and uh, she didn't know I was into sort of into Buddhism and Buddhist practices and um, we're having a, a good old chat on the side of the street and uh, she was telling me that she knows some people who are very good at chanting and they know everything about the Buddha and they know everything about Buddhism but when they go to work they're an asshole she goes <laughs> yeah that's a problem <laughs> and I was like no. that's human nature yeah <laughs> Yeah. So well, where would uh, we be without assholes? You're a scientist. <laughs> we'd be stuck. Well, you wouldn't have me. You wouldn't have me. I tell you that. <laughs> we need assholes too, at least on our bodies. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to be an asshole. Just be a wise guy. And also, <laughs> we need humor. Can't live without it. Oh, well, for life sure. Ain't much fun. And that's that's what I love about people like yourself, Jack Cornfield, Ramdas, Ragu, Marcus. Um, all these people that have kind of, you know, probably brought me to you is that there is lots of humor in there and it's just a great way to look at life, you know? Um, and for me, who's always been a joker and a bit of a, a messer growing up, a wise, guy. a wise guy, it's been, it's been actually heartening to me to be listening to, to lots of your talks. So, you know, if you look on my phone and uh, you look on my podcast app uh, compared to another 40 year old, mine is quite different because it has, you know, probably, I don't know if you can see that, but it's got like the Meta Owl, Darren, well. Duncan Trussell, Audio Dharma, yeah. uh, yeah. Ramdas, Awakening, yeah. Awakening Now podcast, which is your podcast. Yeah, Awakening but, Now is my podcast. I also have social media and 14 books for those who want to follow up. So where can we get a hold of these books? What's, what website should people go to? Amazon. Amazon. I mean, they're in bookstores. Yep. They're in, certainly in your bookstores and down under, but they're from major publishers like Awakening the Buddha Within, Eight Steps to Enlightenment, my big bestseller. Yep. There's some on Dzogchen, like Natural Radiance, um, Awakening the Buddhist Heart is a good one. Awakening to the Sacred, Building a Spiritual Life from Scratch is a good one. If you feel new with this, it's not just about Buddhism. The building blocks of a spiritual life, including journaling, gardening, haiku writing, pets and meditation, um, exercise, communion with others, etc. Yeah, of course, yoga, tai chi, meditation, prayer. Um, my most recent one is, I'm proud of this because it's the only book I know, at least spiritual book, that has the punchline of a joke as the title. It's called Make Me One With Everything. <laughs> you know the joke? Do I have to tell it? Is this, is this about the pizza? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the Dalai Lama goes into a pizza place in Brooklyn. And what does he say? Make me one with everything. everything. <laughs> you, know, you know an Australian, an Australian TV uh, host actually told that joke to the Dalai Lama and then handed him a pizza. That's I, I, really funny. I don't think he was actually he getting it. He didn't know what to do. Well, I don't think he actually, cultural. Yeah, I don't think he got the joke, but he, he had a slice of the pizza. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> the, what matters. Yeah. <laughs> you know, jokes, jokes have to be, it's hard to translate cross-culturally. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Lama, sorry. The Dalai Lama didn't make that joke up, I guarantee you. <laughs> 
You may never have heard it, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I, I, I do. Man who speaks English made it up, I'm sure, a New Yorker. All right, Lama Sordas, we will put all the links to all the information we spoke about this evening in the show notes. Um, once again, thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. I just led a one-week meditation retreat in upstate New York. So if people are interested in like going to a retreat like you did, yep. of a week, three days, a weekend, or 10 days, look at my websites. You'll find my teaching schedule. You're welcome. You know, or if you're visiting in America, visit East Coast, West Coast. We have activities like that all around. That's great. We'll, we'll, we'll put that up in the show notes and in the blog as well that we send out. Um, that's great and uh, that was episode 4 of season 2 of Sleep for Performance Radio hope you enjoyed that episode it was quite different I had a lot of fun as you can tell doing that episode uh, unfortunately we lost Lamas right as there at the end but I think we got all the information so we hung in there till the end ok next episode Episode 5 is quite different. We're going to have Dr. Corey Peacock. Dr. Corey Peacock is an exercise physiologist who works with elite mixed martial arts in the States. This will be quite different than this episode. And I will be quite different. So you'll see another side of me. Uh, I'll go from peaceful zen in this one to crazy MMA fan. Anyway, that episode will be coming out soon. Enjoy this. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and enjoy the next ones. Sleep well. Talk soon. Forgive me if I act a little strange For I know not what I do Feels like lightning running through my veins Every time I look at you Every time I Falling short And there's so much I want to say Want to tell you Just how good it feels When you look at me That way When you look at me That way
This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbis. Orbis are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. 
They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. <laughs> 